recently I heard someone say there are two things I don't talk about at work. Don't talk about religion, and I don't talk about politics. That uh, may work for the person who is not trying to be like Jesus. I can tell you he talks about both of them everywhere. And uh, I know that there is a risk for us to talk about politics at church. There's a risk for us to talk about politics at home. There's a risk for us to talk about politics at work. However, it is something that is by all means important to God. Whether we're talking religion, our politics. And I can tell you one thing, if we were talking religion or politics, it would certainly be better than a whole lot of other things that people often talk about at work and at the dinner table and everywhere else. And so we are going to talk a little bit today, beginning today, I should say, about politics, because we do have a major election coming up, and uh, God calls us to be involved with our society. I think that sometimes uh, Christians try to avoid uh, their involvement with the fallen world around them. We would like to establish Christian schools so that our kids don't have to be in places where there are non-Christian kids and ideas. Sometimes there are Christian colleges with a similar philosophy that I don't want my children to have to be around all of this non-Christian stuff. However, what I see in the Bible is that there was a lot of engagement with the culture. I certainly don't have anything against Christian schools and Christian colleges. We sent our kids in their younger years to Christian schools, and that wasn't so that they could avoid old-worldly influence, but it was so that they could get a biblical worldview in their younger years. And so we did that. And we don't have an issue with that. But if we are trying to disengage from the world, if we're trying to isolate ourselves from a fallen culture, then we have ceased following the model of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was called a friend of publicans, in other words, those dirty tax collectors, and uh, sinners, those people who didn't know God, didn't want God, didn't go to church, didn't claim to be good people. He was a friend of those. And so the model that the Lord Jesus Christ left us is that he was engaged 
with the culture around himself and not isolated from it. And so we too, we look at the world of politics and uh, it is so distasteful. There used to be a time when people in politics were people who were considered statesmen and who were considered ladies and gentlemen. And uh, they were people who wanted to be a role model in terms of their character, often in terms of their faith. They were wanting to be upstanding citizens that you could look up to and you could uh, tell your kids, grow up and be like him, grow up and be like her. So much of that has changed in our culture and politics has become a mudslinger has become a dirt fight. And uh, it's like everybody's hands pretty much are filled with mud where they're flinging at the opponent. It's distasteful to watch what is going on and distasteful to listen to all of the rhetoric and all the lies and misrepresentation Politics used to be more about um, let's vote for the best of the best. And now sometimes it is um, we got to choose between devils and uh, which devil is it that will take us to hell the slowest? Which one will take longer to wreck the country? And often we're having to make difficult choices. And even in the midst of difficult choices, God still calls us to choose. And so I'd like to read a reminder verse to you, and then we'll pray. Here is what God says. God says, you, 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 you. What God says is, you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the one that's supposed to be the, 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 the unique flavor that is different and every other flavor. You're the one who has been called upon to be the preservative of a society that is being spoiled. You are the salt of the earth. You're the one who has been called to be something that is totally different than everything else around you. You're the salt of the earth. And he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, if the church stops being distinct from everything around it, if the church stops being the preservative of society, if the church stops being the defense of morality and godliness and 
the example of good, if Christians stop sticking out like sore thumbs, if they stop being unique or in the estimate of some weird, strange, otherworldly, however you want to phrase it, if the church stops being that unique entity that is different than everything else in the world, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And what that is saying is that if the church ever stops being that unique entity, if we ever stop being the immune system of the nation, if we ever stop being that light that is set on a hill, how can we ever regain that position again? If the church is ever in a position where it's no longer that trusted entity in the world, if the church is no longer that beacon of morality, if, that church, if the church is no longer the place where people feel, uh, if I can't go anywhere else, I can go here and find help and hope, and I can find answers, and I can find acceptance and forgiveness, and I can find love. If the church ever loses that identity, how can it ever get it back again? I think, brothers and sisters, that we are like this close to where the world loses all respect, all regard for the church. Where they start looking at the church and they are of the opinion that the church is a has-been, that the church is no longer that entity that we can trust, that they are no longer the voice of clarity, they're no longer the distinction of morality, they're no longer the ones who have the discernment between right and wrong, they're no longer that beacon of hope and light and help. A lot of churches have gone that way. They want to have as many franchises all over town as they can, and church has become a franchise. It has become a business, and uh, you go in, and you are expected to be there for 45 minutes to an hour, and you're expected to give an offering, and they'll bring in the next crowd behind you, and uh, you're a number, and you're a dollar symbol, and that's what the church is in so many places. And in other places, the churches have become this, this entity that has sort of been folded into one of the religious parties. In some churches, everybody is expected to be a Republican if you're going to attend there, and you believe what the Republicans believe, and you tote the Republican line, and uh, you're going to be a Republican voice if you're a member of this church. In other places, it's just the opposite. It's a Democratic church, and... If there's a politician who is invited to speak, it's going to be a Democrat who carries 
that message that the church has become identified with. And people are no longer told, pray about how you interact with government. Pray about your vote. The church is no longer being told in so many places to have some wisdom and some discernment. Look at the issues. Look who is running for office. Look at what they stand for. Look at their track record. Look at how they have voted in the past. Take into account how they're going to vote in the future. Take into account your biblical values and the kind of society that God is calling us to be a part of. And how do you best effect that outcome as you involve yourselves in politics? And there are other Christians where they don't involve themselves in politics at all. They say to us, God is not a Democrat, he's not a Republican, he's not an Independent, and he is not into politics, and I'm not going to vote. I know what God has said, that this world is going to just go downhill, and this world is going to become a cesspool, and when Christ comes back, there are going to be people marrying and giving in marriage, and they're going to be partying. It's going to be just like the days of Noah. And God has already said that society is going to rot. And uh, I'm just not going to waste my time with politics. And so there are some Christians who just withdraw altogether from the arena of politics. And they would never think about running for any kind of office they would never think about saying to their children that maybe you should think about running for an office or being in politics. And they just totally withdraw. Is that what God has called us to do? To leave a vacuum for the ungodly to fill and for everybody who is in politics to be people who are ungodly people? Is that what God has called us to do as we're trying to be salt and light the preservation of society is to withdraw from the public arena? Of course not. And so in case I have forgotten, in case you have forgotten, the word from heaven is you are the salt of the earth. And what that means is that God has given us a mission and that God is going to hold us accountable and we're going to have the discussion with God. How did you help to preserve the society that you are in? The idea of some is, <laughs> it's not worth preserving. Let's set everything on fire. Let's just destroy the whole place. That just doesn't match what God has said. Even when the people of God were going into captivity in Babylon, do you know what God said to his people? Seek the good of the place where you're going. Why? Because in their success will be your success. If they do well, it's going to trickle down to you is what God says. And even when they were going to this corrupt, this other God society of Babylon, God said, engage, involve yourselves, and seek the good 
of that society. Let's pray, shall we? I ask, dear God, for wisdom from heaven, because I sure don't have anything to offer. And I certainly am just an empty vessel and nobody with nothing to offer. And I just invite you, dear God, to just do what you do, and that is that you would speak to your people and that you would remind us of our duty and that you would just be God in our midst. Have that own way. We give the praise and the glory to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so, if you'll join me in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. In verse number three, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. In verse number four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Thank you for standing with me to honor the reading of the words of our great God and King. Isn't this the life? Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. Doubting Thomas is not there. The betraying Judas is not there. It's just the three chief apostles, and all three of these get along just fine. And so it's just a circle. It's, it's, it's us four and no more. Just Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, and they weren't having to worry about anybody else. All those fussing, arguing apostles <laughs> left them behind. All the needy crowd that was always needing a healing a deliverance. They're always needing something pulling on them from every direction. All of that has been left behind. And it's just the three besties and Jesus. And uh, they, they're up on a high mountain. 
Have you ever seen the, the, the gorgeous views from the heights of a mountain and the freshness of the air and the quietness of the surroundings and, and everything is just perfect. We're on vacation. We're on a retreat. We are on a sabbatical. Call it whatever you want, but it is good to be here. Everything is wonderful. And if that wasn't enough, he transfigured himself before them. And so they're able to see God in a way that they have never seen him before. They, they see the Savior, and he is, his face is shining like the brightness of the sun, and his clothes have become as white as the light. And this is just getting gooder and gooder every moment that they spend there. And then if that wasn't enough, there also appeared their Old Testament heroes. There was Moses, the one who had led the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And there was the prophet Elijah, who had called down fire from heaven. And my, this is, this is good. And uh, they're talking with Jesus and as they are talking, they're, they're, they're talking about things that are of a theological nature. And, and they are just soaking it in. And the word is just washing across their spirit. And, and, and they're just having the time of their lives. And they're not having to put up with any of the stench of the world. They don't have to think about taxes and politics and crime and need, and ministry, and service, and none of that. They are just having the time of their life. And that's the way everybody wants it. Wouldn't it be nice if every day could be a bed of roses? Who would object to that if God said, I just want every day down here to be sweeter than the day before? Who would object? And so Peter has this wonderful idea. In verse number four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And he says, if you wish, I have a suggestion. I would like to make this permanent. Right now, we're just camping out. We don't have any beds and cots and, and all this kind of stuff. But, but if you will let me, I will make this permanent permanent and this is going to be our little isolated village and I will make a shelter for you and I'll make a shelter for Moses and I'll make a shelter for Elijah <laughs> we can just stay here we don't have to go back down this mountain where people are waiting where life is tough where government is corrupt we don't have to deal with all of that we can just stay here Do you see what he is saying? What, what is said in verse number five? In verse number five, God said, shut up. In verse number five, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hey, Peter, <laughs> shut your mouth. Open your ears. Because right now, you're on the wrong track. 
that little speech, that little suggestion, in the middle of it, God didn't even wait for him to finish his sentence, finish his thought. God just interrupted him and said, hey, my son is talking. And whatever idea you have, he has a better one. Whatever direction you think you ought to be going, you want to listen to him. So, in verse number six, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Why? Because God did not whisper. He did not speak with the wimpy voice. He spoke in a very authoritative manner. Hush and listen to my son. You headed in the wrong direction. All of this stuff about life can be sweet. God just didn't have a lot of patience for that. He totally interrupted it, and he interrupted it in a very authoritative fashion. And I know some of us have been praying, Lord, why can't life just be sweet? Why can't life just be easy? Why can't we just take it at leisure as Christians and just enjoy the blessing of the Almighty? Why can't we just avoid all the tough stuff and all the dirt and, and all the stuff of life? Why can't we just stay here? And so they fell face down to the ground. And uh, now Jesus, he comes in. Verse number seven, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Hey, guys, <laughs> Moses, Elijah, and all this tabernacle stuff, and on the mountain, um, that's not the calling. There are going to be high times. There are going to be those times when there's the connection with God, but that's not the norm of reality. The norm of reality in verse number 9, as they were coming down the mountain, leaving the retreat behind and all of the high times and all of the escalated views where we can see all over the city and, and, and hear the sounds of the mountain and the winds blowing through the ravines, all of that kind of stuff, that is not the norm. The norm is we don't live up here, we live down there. And in verse number 9, they're going back down to re-engage, to be a part of government and to be a part of all the things that were happening, to work and to labor and to get their hands dirty and to meet the needs of the people. That is what church is meant to be. That is what Christianity is meant to be. It's meant to be a people who are engaged, a people who are working, a people who are trying to do everything that we can to preserve the society that we live in. Why? Why is it that 
even though the whole world is going to burn, that God wants us to preserve society and to do good to all men, and especially of those of the household of faith. Why? Because when God says he loves people, he loves people. God is not emotionless about the person who can't pay their rent. God is not some person who just doesn't care when there's a divorce that is going on. He really feels the pains of people. He experiences our burdens and he is there for our tears and he shares in our emotions and in our heart. And, and he wants people to have hope and help and a support system and a place where they can go. He wants there to be a place where people say, if I can't go anywhere else, I know I can go there. Did you all know that I used to pastor full time? I did it, it, it was like I did it for like like five minutes. Did y'all know that I was a full-time pastor? I was at the church full-time. Did y'all know that? It was about five minutes or so. I was up here one day, and one of the former members I hadn't seen in a long time came by. And he said, Pastor, I just needed to come by. I just, uh, I'm just so glad you're here. I just needed you to pray with me. Because I got to go do something, and I got to go right now. And I just, I just need God's protection. I just need you to pray with me. And I didn't know it at the time, but he was on his way to Richmond to jump on somebody because there was a squat with the, you know, some, some kind of spat with the family and that kind of stuff. And he came back like a week or so later. And I'm, I'm so glad you prayed with me. Uh, I, I didn't win the fight, but I did, but I, but, I, but I didn't get beat up too bad, and you know, you know, and and, and, I, and I just thought to myself, you know, as 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 ridiculous as that was, at least he knew there was a place of hope where he could come. At some point. The church kind of decided that's not who we want to be. We don't want to be that place of hope. We just want to be this place where it tracks a thousand people and we can get the money from them and we can have commercials and advertisements. We can be a business. And, you know, at, at some point, it seems like the church overall just shifted its mission. And now it's no longer about reaching the lost and giving hope is about being this cool place where people just come and veg out. They're not really looking for God, but they can feel comfortable in their sin. And, and it just became this mushy, off-mission place. And, and people come just to get my needs met, and I just want to get what I need. And it's not about you, and it's not about serving, and it's not about sacrificing. I just want to come from me. You know what I mean? It became this place where it wasn't anymore about engaging with people and serving people and about preserving our society. Instead, it became more about just me kind of like 
coming and vegging out and getting encouragement and serving me and uh, and, and that's the kind of th- that was the kind of turn that Peter was trying to make. Let's just make this about us. Us four no more. Forget the muck and mire of life. And God the Father interrupted and said, shut up. And God the Son said, get up and let's go back down. And sure enough, that was waiting for them. A case of demon possession and ministry was back to normal. And... uh, In that same chapter, as we're getting back to normal, uh, if you'll skip down to verse number 24, I want you to see the involvement of Jesus and his disciples with government. Jesus is the son of God, and he is the son of David. That means that Jesus, theologically and legally, had the right to be the government rather than submitting to the government. And to prove that point, when he comes back in Zechariah chapter 14 and lands on the Mount of Olives, the whole mountain is going to split in two. And it's going to be the ultimate statement of human history where he says, I'm back. And he's going to be king above every king and lord above every lord. And he had that right that the same exact right at his first coming. But instead, he submits to the government and cooperates with the government because he was modeling what we are to do. And so there in Matthew chapter 17 and uh, verse number 24, it says, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, and that's where his ministry sort of gravitated toward once they became hostile to him in Jerusalem, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And they would just set up their booths, their, their, their tax booths, wherever they decided, and uh, they would just collect taxes. They had the Jewish taxes, they had the Roman taxes, and everybody wanted to overtax everybody who came along. And so they're looking at Jesus, and they're looking at his disciples, because they were the ones who were unique. They were the ones who were the trendsetters, so to speak, when it came to the program of God. They were the ones who were showing the way. And so somebody asked a question, doesn't your master and his disciples, don't they participate in the temple tax? Or... Have they disengaged from that and they don't really have anything to do with it? What's the answer? In verse number 25, um, this is Peter. Yes, he does, he replied. And so what Peter was saying is, yes, Jesus Christ involved himself in following the rules of government supporting government, submitting to government, yes, he's engaged with government. And in verse number 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. He already knew the conversation. He already knew what was going on. What do you think, Simon, he asked, 
from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? He says this in general. When you think about what kings do, when they want to raise money to enrich themselves or their kingdoms, where do they get the money from? Do they get it from their own children, their own citizens, or do they go and take it from somebody else? And um, in verse number 26, from others, Peter answered. That's how it's normally done. And so you can imply a couple of things from that. Number one, if other governments are not so oppressive of their own and prefer to get it from others, why is it that our government is being oppressive and, and taking it from us? Here's a second thing that you can draw from it. A second thing that you can draw from it is that government typically is corrupt. If they want something, do they just raise the money? No, they just go ahead and take it from somebody else. And uh, we have seen that happen all throughout history. That's why there are so many wars and conquests and battles that are fought because there is a government who wants to expand or enrich and so they attack a neighboring kingdom or a distant kingdom, and they take what they want. And so depending on whatever view you want to take or whatever you want to draw from it, uh, you can certainly see that perhaps one of the underlying messages is that governments often tend to be corrupt. And so I can understand people not wanting to be a part of the corruption of government and, and all of that stuff. And uh, you know what we have to keep in mind? The Apostle Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 13, he said, there is no government except that which has been established by God. In other words, government was not something that men came up with. Government is something that God came up with after Noah's flood. It was there that God started to prescribe the punishment for murder and these things that were to be enforced by government. It was, it, it was God who came up with government. It's not something that the Republicans, the Democrats, Americans, the British, it was something that was instituted by God. And so in Romans chapter 13, what God says is, there is no government, there is no authority except that which has been given by God and in Romans chapter 13, he said, God did it for the good of society. How is it that God wanted to provide protection for those who were in danger? How is it that God wanted to just better society and care for the indigent? He put government in place in order to serve people. And Romans chapter 13 says, those who oppose government oppose God. And so, in Romans chapter 13, here's the message. And maybe you'll go there and read it yourself this week. But here's the message. God says, I put government in place. And whatever you think about government, or however you treat government, it's a reflection of what you think about me. 
That's what God says. And uh, the question of many would be, well, hasn't government corrupted its role, and isn't government no longer what God meant for government to be? Isn't that the case? Are we supposed to engage in government and be a part of all this corruption? The answer is, if we don't fix it, who's going to fix it? If we don't try to preserve government as best as we can, do you think the unsaved world who doesn't know God is going to try to make government good, or will they just turn it to their purposes to be self-serving? And I want to tell you something about government. that has really gotten the attention of a lot of people, and it's this. If I vote for the right people, I can vote benefits to myself. And instead of government being the entity of good for society, people want to take government and turn it into, what can I get out of government? You can be somebody who is a Democrat, and you can say, if I vote for Democrats, I'm going to get these benefits. You can be somebody who is a Republican, and you can say, if I vote Republican, I'm going to get these benefits. It can work no matter which party line you're talking. And so what I'm saying is this, that if we take government and we make government about ourselves, we can get twisted real fast to where government, instead of it being the agency of God, is an agency for my personal benefit. And that's what has happened all throughout society, and God is calling us to be different. God is calling us to look at government and look at our involvement with government, and God is calling us to walk on a higher level and say, forget about your personal benefit. How can we best preserve the society. And so in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said to Peter, I want you to make sure that you pay the taxes. Do it for me, do it for you, and I'm going to give you the money, and you take it, and you pay the temple tax, because we are not opposed to government. Government has a job, and so we want to give taxes to government so the government can provide the good for the people. Is there corruption? Yes. But is there still a role for government to play? Yes. And just like God holds individuals responsible, God holds politicians responsible. But I want you to pray about something this week. I want you to pray about this. When you look at this whole thing of politics, what does God want our response to be? Does he want us to just wash our hands of it and say, forget all that, it's just a bunch of mess? Does he want us to pray about how my benefits can be better if I 
vote for certain people and I need to vote in my pocketbook. I need to vote business principles. What is it that God wants us to be taking from this? How does he want us to model what Jesus would do when it comes to things like an election? What are the issues that are those issues that God would be most concerned about? Is God concerned about the ills of our society? Of course he is. That's why he put in place prohibitions against all of those ills that we are facing. Of course he's concerned. And sometimes we have to think through the issues and we have to think about, so what are God's priorities? This is what the Democrats are offering. This is what the Republicans are offering. And if I have to choose between these two, which one is it? So often we, av- we, we, we avoid having to think and we just vote in a monolithic fashion. We just say, you know what? All Republicans are bad, so I'm going to vote all Democrats. Or we say all Democrats are bad, and so I'm just going to vote all Republican. And I think that God calls us to be more thoughtful than that. I think God calls us to look at the individual on whatever level it is and that we consider the issues and what they're bringing to the table. And I think we have to look at the issues and we have to prioritize the issues. Is there corruption among the Republicans? Oh yeah. Is there corruption among the Democrats? Oh yeah. Is there corruption among the independents? Yep. And so what are these different areas of corruption and being outside the will of God and going in the wrong direction? And which ones are the really big issues that will get an immediate response from God and bring judgment on this nation? And what are the smaller issues? And I don't mean small, I mean smaller by comparison to those instant show-stopping issues. Because there are some things that we can do as a nation that will invite the rapid judgment of God. And there are other things that we may do as a nation that will invite the judgment of God, but it may be a more patient um, judgment. And we should pray about that. And we should pray about how God wants to use me. One thing that I can tell you that is destroying our nation is that there are too many Christians who are disengaged, who are disinterested, who don't care, who are misinformed, and there are too many Christians who have their own little voice they're listening to and they're not listening to anybody else, and so they don't have a balanced view of anything. And so they think every Republican is bad, or they think every Democrat is bad, or they think every Independent is bad, because they're only listening to that one little voice. And there's more than one voice out there. There's more than one opinion out there. And God wants us to be involved. So do I think for one minute that how I vote is going to change the outcome of the election? No. 
do I think that for one minute how my family votes is going to change the outcome of the election? No. Do I think for one minute that how our little church, our tiny little church, votes is going to change the outcome of the election? No. But I think how I vote is going to change the outcome of my judgment when I stand before God. I think that when my family members stand before God, it'll change the outcome of their experience on the day of judgment. Why? Because God said, you're the salt. That's why. And so, yeah, we need to talk about salt. We need to talk about politics. We're not inviting very many people to church these days, and maybe we are, and maybe they're not coming. But I'll tell you one thing. We need to keep inviting. And there are people who need this kind of information on what Christians ought to think, how Christians ought to be involved when it comes to politics. Let's pray, shall we? We humbly bow before the Almighty. We've heard from your word, and now we need application. It's so easy for it to go into one ear and out, it, out the other. It's so easy for us to think about it for a few minutes, and then once we're gone, the word is gone, the message is gone, our direction is gone. And so we ask, dear God, that you would give us more depth than that, that we would live by it, that we would learn from it, that we would make our decisions based on your word. And we just pray that you would just trouble our hearts, stir our consciences. We pray, dear God, that you would just reform our minds after the image of the mind of Christ. Help us to be salt and light, to be different, to be unique, to be an altogether different voice to be the beacon of light and hope. We pray, dear God, that you would call us back to the high position of being the light that is set on a hill. We pray that we would just understand how honors, how honorable of a role that is, that you have called us. You have called us to be the world changers. And we pray that you would help us to re-engage, to be the people that we used to be, to be the people that Jesus wants us to be, needs us to be. And we'll give you the glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll be standing.